If Maury supported the show, I'd be less sick of podcasts. Yeah, the blah blah blah. Sending out good vibes. not that civilization makes a slow start then it's that civilization as i said earlier restarts them that's how i read the evidence and america is at the center of it america was the most heavily devastated land okay guys welcome back to the grand america show uh we're gonna be chatting with the one and only graham hancock a little bit later uh long time coming much anticipated I'm sure we'll get a, uh, a few new people who come and check out the show, check out Graham's stuff. I'm sure he's got an army that follows him around, a little mini army. So before we get into that, introduce our, our own little Graham. <laughs> <laughs> Graham Beefcake Dunlop. How's it going, buddy? That's not bad. Good start to this intro. Little giggle. You knew I was going to call you little Graham. No, I didn't. It was just, I could just see it coming though. <laughs> <laughs> you had it coming. Uh, so how you been, buddy? Oh, pretty good. I like the beefcake better than the the huscular, anyways. Yeah, that offsets the little. Anyway, one of the first times we record. I think this could be the first time we record an intro before the interview. No, we've done it a couple times. We've Never? had to do it, yeah, but we know this interview with Graham's coming up, and we we want to get it out. And we also have. Uh, some other stuff to discuss. We were doing the raffle for the contact at the cabin with Randall Carlson as well, which kind of seems to be appropriate for this episode three, four, five coming out. What are the chances it would end up? See, when we did set the thing for the draw and everything, we didn't even know we had an option to interview Graham. Yeah, I know. I mean, all this works out, and then it ends up that we. It was supposed to be last week. Now it's this week for this episode for the raffle. Like it just it does work out fairly perfectly for this. Yeah. And guess how many people are in the raffle? Thirty-three. Excellent. It just can't. It just. That's not the raffle. That's the draw. Sorry, that's the, draw. the draw. The raffle is much less. Yeah, eighteen. There's gonna be some happy people yeah, out 18 there. Eighteen people. Yeah, it's good odds. Good odds. Good odds. Yeah. So this is a little intro where we chit chat about stuff before the the show starts. For all you new people here, we read some emails. Got a couple of quotes to read. Get the listeners involved a little bit. And then there's a, a timestamp in the show notes if you want to fast forward to the interview with Graham, or there's a fast forward button sometimes on the podcast player as well. Do you put that in still? I do. Uh, yep, yep, I do. It's Good. part of the process. Good. I do that shit. Part of the editing process. Good stuff. Yeah, we got the. New How are you doing? Uh, I got a swollen jaw. Yeah, mouth. I know. I'm noticing the lisp now a little bit. Yeah, I got a swollen jaw. This gets more swollen because I haven't had my anti-inflammatories all day. Then <laughs> you not allowed to have your Percocets? No, it wouldn't give me any Percocets. Um, Thank God for that good dentist. <laughs> I mean, he went to the right guy if he's not just handing out Percocets. Oh, no, Mind you, that. he had to break the tooth in three to get it out, I don't know right? about that. Yeah, it was a thing. So, the, well, first I went, I don't know if I talked about it on the show, 
when I went to the dentist because I had a toothache where the filling fell out. And then it turned out I had a root canal there already. An old root canal, yeah. Yeah, and it was infected again. They always say they're infected now, I think. Yeah, so then I went and seen the root canal specialist, and they were just going to pass they it back They you to a up. root canal specialist? Yeah, the endontist or whatever the fuck. Um, anyway, she, she wanted to do another root canal. I was like, eh, I've heard a lot of bad press about root canals lately. Well, what'd she say? She said it'd be fine. That's all bullshit. Really? Yeah. Wow. Straight up. So, and you know, the people I was talking to were like, yeah, I, I think you should get that tooth out. So I was like, finally, I booked it. And I was pretty apprehensive about it. Like, it was a, it was a long weekly note to it because it's an important tooth. <laughs> you know? One of your molars? One of my molars. And I'm like, not going to be a tooth there anymore. Makes it tough to do stuff sometimes, like eat steak and things like that. So now I'm going to have to look at a bridge or something. But anyway... It's easier for you to do your native Indian accent with that out. Whoa. That's pretty racist. <laughs> anyway, I, uh, I thought you were playing it up a little bit there with mouth closed. Huh. I, <laughs> I, uh, I went, decided to just go for it, pull it, and took about an hour and a half. I expected it to be honestly like a little 20 minute operation. I gotta say, the needle's not as bad as it used to be. Yeah, they're pretty soft. Because now these days they put that topical shit on and then they give you the needle. So they did all that and then, yeah, Buddy was going at it for a while. It was terrible. Terrible, terrible experience. And it's just like, <laughs> busted into a bunch of pieces and tunk, tunk, tunk. Anyway. Did he have to get up on the chair and get the leverage? And Oh, he had so many little tools. Like, he was, like, wee, grinding it up with yeah. the thing. And then yeah. he's got his little crowbar to try and break it. Yeah. And then he tries to pull on it with his pliers. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty gross. All the while telling me I'm crazy. Anyway, he got the tooth out. And he's like, oh, it's still all infected back there. So I got really? more antibiotics. I got another cycle antibiotics and some other stuff. See? And then I got to go see him in a couple of weeks and see if I might have to go see because there's a hole. The infection opened up a hole to my like sinus. To no, to my sinus, whatever. Really? So your sinus like, cavity? I mean, I don't know what the what the literature is, but I'm like, does that mean I was right? Yeah, exactly. Because when I told that to John, he's like, it's a good thing you got that tooth out. Yeah. I'm not a scientist, but. Well, I was going to. They that were just going to plug that shit up. With a hole. Oh, yeah. Adam says, swish with collodial silver. That's a good idea. Where the... I got some at home. <laughs> of course you do. What <laughs> I do without you? Anyway. Well, you should have gone to the naturopathic dentist I was recommending you to go to because they put take your blood when they do that. They put it through a centrifuge. They separate the white blood cells and your, and your stem cells, and it turns into this coagulated gel, and then they pop that down the hole, and it heals everything up nicely. Well, I might do that yet. I really might. We'll see. It's a possibility. You can say, sorry. You know what's funny is you were asking me, well, do they have direct, what do you call it again? Direct billing. Direct billing. And I'm like, no, they don't. And then today, the day after you went, I got an, a note from them that they have. They now have direct billing. Of course they do. Yeah. Anyway, that's good because I want to get all my kids and stuff over there. And I should go see them. But anyway, yeah. yeah. I've got this tooth missing now. Because I've got, they've got, got the same thing, but I don't know if that's a, an infection with a root canal or without a root canal, but they wanted to pull one too. And the problem is the option of putting something back in that space is super expensive. It's ridiculous. Yeah, I'm pretty sure the bridge will cost a couple grand. Yeah. 
I'm hoping, I think insurance will pay like half of it. Maybe it's like something I can look at doing in the next, I don't have to rush it, I guess, you know. Is it getting, is it getting more sore by the, by the minute here? Cause you're. Well, the anti-inflammatory has been wearing off all night. I'm sure like the last one I took was at like two o'clock or something like that or three o'clock. So that's just like. Kind of talking with a lisp now. Slow, fuck you. How about that? You're, slur, you're slurring. Are you drunk? I've been drinking. This is vodka. Um. Yeah, so that was fun. That was fun. GrandMarker.ca slash support. What do you got? That's my sad puppy dog story. What do I got? What do you got? Should we just do the draw right away? Well, I guess we could. I mean, we got, so so we have, let's explain what's we going on. We should make people so listen to the whole intro. <laughs> sure, whatever you want. Down and going you had to pick deep. this one. It's a profound UFO quote of a week. The socials are still all fucked up. Okay. What's the point It's a profound UFO quote of a week. Oh, they picked a quote out of my book, The Octopus of Global Control, instead, because I'm done with the UFO quotes. This might be a bit heavy, but I need Darren, Darren to see if he can guess who this is. I think I'm going to guess. You ready? We're developing a society because of these different toxins that are known to affect brain functions. We're seeing a society that not only has a lot more people of lower IQ, but a lot fewer people of higher IQ. In other words, a dumbing down, a chemical dumbing down of society so that everyone is sort of mediocre. That leaves them dependent on government because they can't excel. Oof, this is pretty heavy. We have these people of lower IQ that are totally dependent on government, and then we have this mass of people who are going to believe anything they're told because they can't really think clearly. And very few people of high IQ who have good cognitive function who can figure this out. And that's what they want. So, you know, you kind of you piece it together as to why they are so insistent in spending so many hundreds of millions of dollars on propaganda money to dumb down society. Graham Hancock. No. <laughs> Dr. Russell Blaylock, a retired U.S. neurosurgeon and author. I thought you said you were going to find a Graham Hancock quote. No. No. For this episode. That's exactly what you said. Well, I, yeah, I found appropriate, I found a couple of appropriate emails. Ah, I thought you were setting me up to look fucking dynamite <laughs> on the guests. Sorry. Instead, I look like an asshole. I do have an appropriate one here, and it's a long, it's, a, it's from uh, Rupert Sheltrake's blog, actually, if you want me to read that. And it's kind of got to do, and I believe the timing might be around when Graham and him got uh, banned from TED. Do you remember that, when that happened? Uh, yes. Do you want me to read that? Should I? It's like a page long, but I could do it. You might as well. <clears throat> so this is from uh, Sheldrake's, and it's about the, the Wikipedia under threat. This is, this is pretty critical stuff. Wikipedia is a wonderful invention, but precisely because it is so trusted and convenient, people with their own agendas keep trying to take it over. Editing wars are common. Everyone knows that they're opposing views on politics and religion, and many people recognize a biased account when they see it. But in the realm of science, things are different. Most people have no scientific expertise and believe that science is objective. Their trust is now being abused systematically by a highly motivated group of activists called guerrilla skepticism on Wikipedia. Skepticism is a normal, healthy attitude of doubt. 
Unfortunately, it can be used as a weapon to attack opponents. In scientific and medical contexts, organized skepticism is a crusade to propagate scientific materialism. Most materialists believe that the mind is nothing more than the physical activity of the brain. Psychic phenomena are illusory and complementary, and alternative medical systems are fraudulent, or at best produce placebo effects. Several advocacy organizations promote this materialist ideology in the media and in educational institutions. The largest and best funded is the Committee Committee for Skeptical Inquiry, that's CSI, which publishes the Skeptical Inquirer magazine. The guerrilla skeptics have carried the crusading zeal of organized skepticism into the realm of Wikipedia and use it as a soapbox to propagate their beliefs. This summer, a commando squad of skeptics captured the Wikipedia page about me. They have occupied and controlled it ever since, rewriting my biography with as much negative bias as possible to the point of defamation. The guerrilla skeptics are well-trained, highly motivated, have an ideological agenda, and operate in terms in teams contrary to Wikipedia rules. The mastermind behind this organization is... Susan Gerbeck. She now explains how her teams work in training video. She now has over 90 guerrillas operating in 17 different languages. Their teams are coordinated through secret Facebook pages. They check the credentials of new recruits to avoid infiltration. Their aim is to control information. And she glories in the power that she and her warriors wield. They have already seized control of many Wikipedia pages, deleted entries on subjects they disapprove of, and boosted the biographies of the atheists. As the guerrilla skeptics have demonstrated, Wikipedia can easily be subverted by, by determined groups of activists, despite its well-intentioned policies and mediation procedures. Perhaps one solution would be for the experienced editors to visit the talk pages of sites where editing wars are taking place, Rather than rather like UN peacekeeping forces and try to reestablish a neutral point of view. But this would not help in cases where there are no editors to expose the guerrilla skeptics or where they have been silenced. If nothing is done, Wikipedia will lose its credibility and its financial backers will withdraw the support. I hope the noble aims of Wikipedia will prevail. Now it's gone from that to Defunding and deplatforming social media, YouTube, right? Right. All those other platforms. Right. That's why we need support. This is why we need support. Gramerica.ca slash support. Eventually we could stream to our own server. Imagine that. Yeah. We've got the... No, it's a real thing though. I mean, this is the problem with the, the lack of free speech because activists can come in and do this kind of thing. Oh, yeah, so that's what we forgot to talk about, the dentist. So then they said I couldn't smoke pot for a couple of days because I could get dry socket. That's why you put that uh, gel- gelatin of your white blood cells back in the hole. So you don't get the dry socket? Yeah. Yeah, because that doesn't sound Because you don't want to be going, <sighs> did you tell them what if you did edibles? Like it was smoking. It was the oh, yeah, act edibles, of smoking. Edibles would be okay. So I was like, well, why don't you give me some Percocets then? And he was like, 
well, no, I'm not giving you Percocets. He's like, I'll give you an anti-inflammatory. That's what you need to keep down the swelling. And I'm like, well, yeah, you got both. <laughs> I was like, just one or two. He's like, no, he wouldn't do it. Good for him. Yeah, good That's for him. Good. Yep. He probably and thinks then, I'm a pill junkie. <clears throat> yeah, well, why, yeah. For the record, I'm not a pill junkie. I was just like, hey, go you home. sell it? No, just, if I had a Percocet, I'd just eat it. <laughs> go home and go to bed. Boom, and not for hurt. You know, the thing is, my fucking face hurt. So a Percocet makes all the pain go away. Actually, the anti-inflammatories were pretty good, too. Good anyway. stuff. So I got a couple emails here. We could get into the draw, whatever you want to do. Let's uh, let's do the emails. It's going to take forever to explain your little draw system. So it's not going to take forever. It's two seconds. Okay, this is an email from uh, from Rob. <clears throat> Hi, Graham. Just wanted to pass you this info if you haven't already found it. It's a very detailed matter of fact work through on ancient knowledge and way of life before the parasitic mind of violence, war, and suffering took over and we started rewriting history and convening the human race. We've always been warring and violent and now is the pinnacle of our evolution. I missed a word there. There are countless comparisons of artifacts, structures, and building techniques from around the world and how they all match up. This overlaps with Graham Hancock's research, but pulls all the threads together so the mystery of an ancient culture is actually suggested as our previous peaceful and global civilization, which was conquered through wars, establishing power, and huge efforts undertaken to eradicate all of its trace from the earth. Earth? Many well-known events in our history are examined with new eyes, such as the Inquisition, of people who don't accept and submit to the new order and established history at the time, where people could clearly see how it was imposed. The extermination of the Mayans by the conquistadors, because they spoke the old world language, and so on. There's a huge amount in there, and narrated and powerfully sincerity, in my opinion. So that he's, so he linked to a channeled a channel called The New Earth, which I was watching some of it. It's pretty interesting. When the survivors of Atlantis and Hyperborea wake up. Oh, the trip you're organizing next May sounds very cool. I'd love to go, but it's a long way from London. Maybe you could do one in the UK sometime, Scotland. Contact at the I'd castle. I'd love to do that. Yeah, <laughs> people are talking about the Scotland for sure. The Highlands. Well, what? Yeah, I mean, all of Scotland would be cool. Isn't the Highlands Scotland? Yep. Is not Scotland? Is the Highlands? No, Highlands are in Scotland. Oh. Yeah, that'd be fun. So we're thinking about that next year, maybe. Would we sleep in the castle? Play D and D in the castle. That's not. That's happening. a thing. That's a. Uh, that's a new travel thing. Is it? Yeah. D and D meetups in the castle. You're going to be using up all your holidays for D&D meetups. We're not going to be able to do any more travel events. No, we'll do one. We'll do both. D&D, baby. You managed to D&D up the raffle. What else you got? I got a synchro, another appropriate one. I mean, I do love how I save up these synchros and, and these emails. Synchronistic and, times. And, yeah, exactly. <clears throat> hey, Graham, have you seen the new season of the OA yet? Have you watched it at all? 
I've watched one episode. It's pretty cool. I watched the first half before listening to the podcast with Joseph and Denny yesterday. Oh, that is interesting because it's about that game. That was totally reminding me of, the, of that podcast about the real life gaming. You remember? Uh, oh, yeah, the the one with the QAnon dude. So the, the way it changes quite a bit after the first episode when it gets into that PI and the, and the game. I don't know. I only watched one episode. <clears throat> I finished off the rest of the season of OA last night. It was a lot of synchros between that podcast and the show. Gameplay, convergence of tech and supernatural, what I thought was ritual magic, dimensional travel. I seldom hear about this stuff outside of the podcast. So it was somewhat synchronistic to catch the show on the podcast at the same time. I think this month I've been supporting I've been supporting the show for a year now. It feels good and I've recommended it to all listeners. You guys rock. Keep up the awesome work. Looking forward to meeting you at Contact at the Cabin. Contact at the Cabin. Which actually reminds me of a Randall Carlson synchronicity I should share. <clears throat> a, friend, a friend shared Joe Rogan's first podcast with Randall back in 2013 with me. I got into Joe's show and it led me down a pretty strong self-improvement path. I quit my job in high-tech construction in Silicon Valley, came back to eastern Washington to work with my dad and our family business doing construction. It was a pretty big leap of faith that I made in the summer of 2014. In the summer of 2015, after having taken a break from listening to podcasts, I tuned back into the Joe Rogan experience for my commute. We had just won a big job out in a tiny town called Almira, Washington. Been my, there. <clears throat> have you? I'm through it. On my way, I popped on Joe's show and searched for the new Randall Carlson episode. It was the one with him and Graham Hancock, touring the dry falls in eastern Washington. This was exactly where I was in my truck when they started talking about the dry falls. I was heading east on Highway 2 and came over the last hill and saw the dry falls right in front of me. I recognized it as a sinkhole and wanted to tell somebody, too bad I was not a Grimerican yet. I went down the rabbit hole for quite a while and that led me to search for Randall Carlson podcasts I could find on Spotify. That was... The second time I found Grimerica, the first was searching for Wall Thornhill. After that, I knew you guys were legit, and I was hooked on from then on. Now I get to hang out with you guys and Ran, at Ran Randall at CAC, contacted the cabin. So awesome. That was Brando. Thanks, Brando. Marlon Brando. Awesome. Support the show? You have more emails. Osinko? I'm a rambling gram with synchronicities all over the web. And it's skeptical about everyone and don't believe it yet. 7.4. Oh, you rated it. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. What do you think I was doing? I don't know. I don't know what you're it's doing. Weird and yo, eh? Yeah. I need a little camera here to just get your things, your gramisms. I actually think I could put a camera on your phone with the new software. I can use your phone as a remote camera. You do, you do a fine job catching me as it is. I do. So it's I'm a real skill. I should be like one of those, is there a term for the photographer that catches people when they're not expecting it? That's the way my sister photographers things, photography <laughs> things. 
She does. For you, she doesn't always, like. She always likes like candid pictures. It's the candid. candid that's what it is. I catch you in very candid situations. So should we go to the draw then? Let's or go to the draw. Beg for money. Well, whatever, whatever. Yeah, whatever you want. We we did a little bit already. So we do have other ways to support the show. We really thank everybody for helping out though, because well, honestly, we couldn't pay the rent and pay for all these connections and all the. Darren's just trying some new uh, streaming software here. We're on a free trial, but that's going to cost a few hundred bucks. So stuff like that really helps that you guys uh, help us out. We love getting email stories and sightings and feedback and synchronicities. You can email Graham at GrahamAmerica.com. Absolutely. Share the show. Subscribe. You want to continue? You usually do the spiel. Or rate them. Or rate your synchros. Yeah. Well, the spiel is just uh, check out everything in the show notes. And there's a bunch of things to do there. You can review the show. We'd like to get at least 1% reviews. We'd actually be getting close to 1% reviews. 1% support is also a goal. Actually, 3% support is the bigger goal. But 1% for now would be fantastic. Uh, so, yeah, it, I mean, it just helps. Helps us feel special, makes you feel special, everybody feels special. And we get to expand and grow and pay for the new software. That's 500 bucks. Let the trial run out at the end of May. It all helps. I mean, we'd love to do more stuff like the Randall Carlson event and see what we could expand to with things like that. And, well, who knows? Sky's the limit. If we get support, we want to finish migrating stuff to our own self, uh, self-hosted self audio and self-hosted everything eventually down the road so that we're not beholden to any gatekeepers. Well, we, already, we already got shadow banned on iTunes. I mean, it's proven. Darren talked about it a couple episodes ago. You know, I read that quote from from Sheldrake and Wikipedia. I mean, it's happening in, you know, the the the, the part the, the place that I thought was safest for a while, the U.S. iTunes Store, is not safe anymore. Like that's that's hitting a new level of censorship. There you have it. Right. Right. So, anyways, keep going. So that's it. Uh, just helps the more people support the show. Uh, it helps us do things. We really do. Uh, we do need it. support. There's a perpetual chats too. America. Discord chats. Yeah, goamerica.ca slash chats. It's always fun to poke into there. It's pretty fast moving. We also have a black budget feed, which is different content, extra content. That's right. Any any level of support gets access to that. There's some Randall Carlson goodness in there right now. A bunch yeah. of Randall Carlson goodness in the black budget yeah. from the Monday night uh, meetings we've been doing. Uh, we've been recording the Monday night pre pre-contact pre pre-cac pre meetings it's been great so is there any cac tickets left for people there's uh i think maybe two or three left at this point but there's enough technically there's enough people on the waiting list to buy them up but uh they don't want to buy the private bedrooms that's what we've got left so if we don't you know eventually we'll just <clears throat> move some people around uh, and give them to people on the waiting list. But if you still want to buy a ticket, you're going to have to buy the bedrooms. So they're, I think they're $1,200 a piece or something like that. You'd have to you'd go to the badcomet.com website and check it out. And I think there's three of those left in the second uh, in the second trimester. So you might be thinking about it. Maybe probably by the time you finish this interview with Mr. Graham Hancock, you're going to be thinking about it even harder. Uh, my best advice to you would be to get to the website immediately because a bunch of other people are going to have that aspiration and the last three tickets are going to disappear like that. 
So, yeah, all that. What are you smiling about over there? Somebody's put pictures of <laughs> us in the chats. What? <laughs> From the YouTube? What? <laughs> oh, yeah. That means we're going around oh, for a while. Man. See, thanks. Hey, you put my picture in the chats, and that's what happens. That's been going around oh, for a while. Has it? Yeah. No, it's different. got the new, my new, oh no, it, it, it's not the new squint. It's the old one. Uh, Is that the one that's holding the sign? Yeah. I don't know where the original sorry picture came from. Sorry to interrupt you again. I don't get the joke. What joke? Of whatever that is. I don't know who the original characters are. Anyway, should we go to the dice cam? Let's, let's do you go, let's start? do this. Here, I'll go to the dice cam <clears throat> since I'm the audio engineer and video producer. And you start explaining your system. We're just doing a random dice roll to figure out who gets the. So explain the raffle first of all. We have a we have a a raffle and a draw. So this the first one is the draw. This is all the people that are supporters of the show who wanted to enter into the draw. We have a free ticket to contact at the cabin, right? That's right. We have a, well, we have a free camping spot that we're giving away. Right, free camping spot for which trimester? Second trimester. Second trimester. So that'd be May. 20th to 23rd. 20th to 23rd. And we also There's have... 33 people in the draw for that one. That's right. And then we have a raffle with 18 people for people that uh, bought the raffle ticket. That's right. And that's for what? For when? Private bedroom. Private bedroom. Which trimester? Second trimester. Second trimester again. So, that's right. So the winners of these people, these two draws will probably meet. That's right. On May 20th. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Exactly. You got it all figured out. Way to go, big guy. Okay, so we're I just going to roll some dice figure this out. There's 33 people entered. Adam, are you ready to go? He's got the dice cam going there. He's muted. So, no, you have to explain what's going on. No, and say we're going to roll. You're just going to roll and say who won? You're not going you don't, I don't think we should read all the 33 names. Do you want me to do that? I can do that if you want. You have to explain your convoluted dice It's system. not. It's just 2d10 and 2d8 minus 3. No one three. knows what that means. Okay, explain that. It means it's, it's a potential of... Assuming 30, you're explaining it to the 95% of the audience a, that's never played Dungeons it's, and Dragons. It's, it's rolling basically a chance of 1 out of 33 on those dice. That's all it the is. The dice that's are a random you, number generator. Yeah, it's a random number generator. Minus 3. So in the spirit of the role-playing games that we play sometimes, we're going to roll some dice. All right. All right, Adam, you got the 2D10s roll and the 2D8s? Them, roll them one at a time. Yep, just need to know which one to do first. Okay, do one that. at a time. 2D10, no, no, they don't. They roll all four at once and add them up. 2D10s. One at a time. Eight. Nine. Okay, and the 17. 2D8s, right? Two, five. 17 and seven, 24. Yep. All right. Who wins? Okay. Then you minus three off that. Minus three. 21. Should I just say the name then? Just, uh, just say the I'll first name, you. I guess. Show me. Genie. Genie Braun. Congratulations. Last name too, unless they didn't want to say last names, but yeah, you won. Whoops. You should, you just, if you don't want to say <laughs> last name, just don't, don't tell us. <laughs> so one person put in there, no last name if I win. So 
It's really tough to uh, stop us from saying last names. We're terrible at it. Anyways, yeah, Jeannie Braun won. Failed at it. She won the. Time. She won the draw. I uh, yeah. Well, that's what. So we've got your email here. We'll send you an email in case you didn't hear this, or in case you're and not listening live. Did you tweet about this or something? No. Okay. All right. Now to the raffle. Now to the raffle. Adam, are you ready? 2D8 and 1D4. Oh, you didn't use those. Wait. my dice together. So this one's minus three again? No, minus two this time. 2D8, because eight and eight is 16. Plus four is 20, minus two is 18. That's the top of the... That's the top of the pick. 2d8 and 1d4? Yeah. Minus 2? Yeah. 2d8 and 1d4, correct? Yeah. Imagine the stuff right. you could accomplish if you weren't tied up with this bullshit. <laughs> All right, starting with the 8s. Okay. 7. 1. D4. Eight. 1. Nine minus two is yeah. lucky number seven. seven. Cyrus. Cyrus? Yeah. You son of a Cyrus bitch. gets it. Oh well. There he goes. Wow. There you have it. So where are we at? Should we call him? We nah, could call him. First time, long time. First time, long time. I'm not gonna call him. We could. Let's do it. Let's do it. Right now? He's unexpecting. Sure. Yeah, I know. He's probably still at work. See, he's not going to be able to go or something. <laughs> he, might, he might just tell us to redraw it right now. <laughs> Depends what kind of mood he's in, probably. Anyway, congratulations, Cyrus. And uh, Genie. Genie B. Yep. It'd be good to have uh, those guys there. Absolutely. So you're not calling them or... No, I'm not calling him. I text him. We'll see if he answers the text before we the end of the show. Then we'll uh, then I'll call him. Well, it is the end of the show. It is the end of the show. So yeah, enjoy the chat with the one and only Graham Hancock. So with us tonight, we've got Graham Hancock, and he's played an integral role in changing the mainstream paradigm of ancient mysteries in human history. Independent researcher, journalist, and author of many books, including the ones that you all know, like Fingerprints of the Gods and Magicians of the Gods. 
And we're here mainly to chat about his new book, America Before, The Key to Earth's Lost Civilization. Fantastic uh, book. And uh, yeah, thanks for coming on the show, Graham. It's great to talk to you. My pleasure to be back with you. Yeah, it's, uh, it's great to chat about this. I mean, it's another massive book. Yeah, I always write massive books. <laughs> I couldn't believe it when, it when it came in the mail again. I was like, wow, I wasn't expecting it. I wasn't expecting another massive one, but I was actually at the bookstore yesterday looking at, at in the Graham, the Graham Hancock section. Yeah, it's got his own section now. Yeah, and it's just all massive books. I was actually yeah. looking for, I want to get some of the fiction for my wife because she, she loves that kind of stuff. So I want to get her into the fiction stuff. Right, yeah, that's right. A lot of my readers don't know that I write fiction as well. Uh, although, mind you, my critics in the academic community would say that my nonfiction is fiction too. <laughs> in fact, in fact, they often do. Uh, but uh, I, I um, enjoy writing fiction. It's uh, it, it 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 allows me to stretch and extend my my skills as, and my calling as a as a writer in ways that nonfiction does does not do. But nonfiction. Nonfiction is where it's at. That's what I'm. That's what I'm best uh, known for, and that's where my work has the most impact. Well, there's quite a different process for you as well. I remember hearing you talk about how you for this for this nonfiction, like for America b- before, you did a a shit ton of research beforehand, traveling all over, and then you hunker down for super long days and and kind of hammer it all out, right? Exactly. That's that's over the years I've developed a method of uh, of, of writing these books, and that is. That is, first of all, it's pointless for me to write about anything if I don't have direct experience of it myself. If I'm not out there in the field, if I'm not directly doing the investigation, if I'm not talking to people who know about this stuff, including the leading academics in the field, yeah. then it's pointless for me to write it at all. So I have to immerse myself deeply in the specialists who are working in the field, in the in 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 the area areas of land covered by covered by my story uh, and 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 experience what I'm what I'm writing about that's 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 what I do so I get out there and I will spend two three years gathering the information immersing myself in the subject and then when it comes to write my my basic method is to sit down and write for 16 hours a day seven days a week and and uh, completely immerse myself in the writing of the story so that I don't lose contact with the flow of the story and, and stay plugged into it. And, and indeed, everything that I've learned as I've gone along begins to take shape and take form properly only when I sit down and start writing it. Yeah, that's interesting. We've had so many authors come on that, that talk or that write about these interesting topics and they, they, they make it seem like it's almost like a download. At some point, it just flows through. Yeah, it feels like a, it does sometimes feel like a download. And I, I think part of my task as a writer when I'm actually doing the writing part of this is to is to get out of my own way and, yeah. and not not overthink the su- subject, do all the thinking before and then and then let the writing let the writing flow. And it does sometimes feel like a download from the cloud. And the more the more open minded a state I can get myself into, the better the better it's going to be. And the more I overthink it and the more I plan it, the less the less good it's gonna be. Yeah. That's great. So how's the reception of your book so far? I mean you're on tour. We gotta mention that for sure, that you're you're going around doing a, a tour as well. Even though you well, skipped yeah, Calgary. 
so far, so far, so far, it's doing very good. You know, I mean, I can't, I can't help it. I do check the rankings. It's nice to, it's nice, as we speak. It's, uh, I think, number thirty out of the five million books sold on Amazon, uh, and wow. it's number, and it's number four out of all the books sold on Barnes and Noble. Of course, that will change from minute to minute. But uh, as we're as we're speaking, that's where it's at. That's a hot reception for this book because it's only been published for two days. Uh, was published on the 23rd of April. It's um, it, it, it's exciting to see that, but I, I take nothing for granted. I'm grateful to my readers. I'm grateful for their loyalty. I'm grateful for their solidarity and sticking by me through the through through the years. And it's and it's nice to see that uh, expressing itself in in big numbers of the book going out there. And that means that the work has an impact, and it means that the academics can't ignore it, and it means that they can't dismiss it. This is what this is the only thing that gives me power and impact as a as, as a writer is actually my readers. There's a an intimate relationship between writers and readers, and I think that many many writers are too dismissive of of their readers. I, I'm nothing without my readers, and I'm grateful to them every time they buy my book and help people to pay attention to it because there's a huge academic establishment that is determined to shut me down and wants to tell wants to persuade the world that my work has no significance and no meaning whatsoever. And when large numbers of people go out and pick up that book and find worth and value in it, then that changes that story and it makes it harder for the skeptics to, you know, to piss on my work. Well, I know at least 50 people that were waiting that had it pre-ordered. And um, I got to say, before I forget, I got to mention that because Fingerprints of the Gods came out in 94, I think, right? 95. 95. And that's like, you know, 20 years probably 20 years ahead of its time before before that stuff starts catching up and i i mean lords of poverty came out in 89 and like you could re-release that book today yeah and it That's, would and it would be extremely you know relevant relevant it's interesting that you that you raise that and thank you for doing so because for a, for a long part of my writing career i was uh, i was not uh, focusing on ancient mysteries at all i was i was very much focusing on current affairs and in 1989, indeed, I did publish a book called Lords of Poverty with the subtitle The Freewheeling Lifestyles, Power, Prestige and Corruption of the Multi-Billion Dollar Aid Business. Uh, and uh, at the time, uh, nobody was criticizing foreign aid. You know, it was like criticizing motherhood. Uh, but but I criticized it. And, and uh, yeah, sure enough, as the years went by, the, the, the corruption of aid began to show and how useless it is began to show. And and what was what was a book that was was attacked at the time uh, turned out turned out to be to be basically right. And I think many people now are very disillusioned with the whole subject of of foreign aid. So I'm 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 glad I was ahead of the curve on that. Um, I'm I'm glad that I was able to put that information out there. And that's what I try to do with uh, with with what I'm writing about now. To you know to 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 anticipate uh, what really matters uh, and and to try to focus on that. Absolutely. And I really feel like America before kind of, in a lot of ways, it's going to be the, the quickest to, to show people that, well, I like it's, you know, we're not going to have to wait. I don't think we even have to wait five years no. before uh, this stuff. I mean, like we're good yeah. friends with Randall Carlson. We're actually doing an event with them here in just a few weeks right. down yeah. in Pagosa Springs. And I mean, you know, we talk to him pretty regularly and he's like, you know, it's, 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 the cat's out of the bag at this point. Yeah. It's just a matter of time. Cat's out of the bag. Randall's a good friend of mine too, and an absolute, absolute genius. 
Yeah, uh, the the fact is that we're in the midst of a deluge of new information about the prehistory of the Americas. Uh, in, in fact, that's that's the, the reason that I've that I've written this book at all. Uh, American archaeology uh, has been particularly bad. I'm I'm critical of archaeology all over the world, yeah. uh, but but surprisingly, uh, American archaeology stands out as the as the most rigid uh, and the most narrow-minded uh, area of archaeology that I have that I have ever encountered. The picture is changing. There is a new generation of younger archaeologists who are who are coming into to positions and doing and doing research and and they're quite different from their from their elders but the fact is that for a very long time really from the 1960s through until about 2010 there was I can only describe it as a as a rigid dogma which gripped American archaeology and that rigid dogma uh, was uh, was based around the ideas and the research of a few extremely powerful individuals uh, within archaeology. And they put forward what was initially a theory, but rapidly transmutated into an unquestionable quote-unquote fact. They put forward the notion that there had been no human beings in the Americas before 13,400 years ago. And they, you know, they they argued this in all kinds of ways. First of all, they said they weren't finding any human artifacts or any evidence of human presence before 13,400 years ago. And then they looked at the climate and they said, well, North America was covered with a giant ice cap um, during the Ice Age, actually, for, for millions of years. Um, and and the Bering, the Ber where we now have the Bering Straits were connected to Siberia uh, because sea level was about 400 feet lower during the Ice Age than it is today. So that was a land bridge. And this was seen as the sole route of migration into the Americas. And it seemed logical to suggest that no humans could have come before 13,400 years ago, because that was when briefly there had been a period of global warming and a kind of corridor opened up through that massive North American ice cap, which was, I mean, two miles deep, you know. Uh, it was a formidable barrier. People had been able to come across from Siberia, but they got stuck in Alaska and they couldn't get into North America. This was the argument. And they'd come through that ice-free corridor, which opened up about 13,400 years ago. And that's when you see the first human artifacts. So superficially, it seemed like a convincing argument. But what they'd forgotten was that there was an earlier, or perhaps chose to ignore, was that there was an earlier episode of an ice-free corridor as well. And that happened between 140,000 years ago and 120,000 years ago. And the archaeological view was, oh, there's no point in looking at that period um, because we've already established that human beings were, were not in America until 13,400 years ago. So it, same, it became a self-fulfilling prophecy. They would not look at older deposits because they had convinced themselves that there was nothing there. And therefore, it was not... It was not worth spending research funds on. And the, the dogma actually had a name. It was called Clovis First. Uh, and that refers to a culture that archaeologists call the Clovis culture, uh, after the name of a town in New Mexico called Clovis, New Mexico, where some of their artifacts were found. They call them the Clovis culture. They were supposed to be the first Americans. They came in 13,400 years ago. And anybody 
any archaeologist who dared to suggest that human beings had come in earlier than that would be savagely attacked by their colleagues. It was, it was as though they had committed some terrible thought crime, uh, which, which uh, somehow would bring the whole edifice of archaeology tumbling down. Uh, and, and careers were ruined over this. Um, uh, people like Jacques Sank Mars, who excavated bluefish caves in the Yukon, found evidence of humans there 25,000 years ago, uh, is a classic example, the way that he was turned on by, by his colleagues in the profession. He described it as being at the hands of the Spanish Inquisition. Uh, he was vilified at conferences. His research funding was withdrawn. He was unable to continue with his work. But 20 years later, he was vindicated when bluefish caves was re-excavated and everything he'd said was found to be true because by then things had begun to change. The evidence was beginning to pile up that human beings had been in the Americas before 13,400 years ago. And it was piling up to such an extent, such an extent that it began to overwhelm the old paradigm. And, and now we have a situation where archaeologists admit, hey guys, we got it wrong. We misled you for 60 years. Actually, there were humans in America long before 13,400 years ago. Whoops, it was just a little mistake we made. But no, it wasn't a little mistake. It was a huge mistake. And it affects our understanding not only of the history of the Americas, but also of the history of the entire world. Yeah, I don't think it helped much either that, that our that the history of humans themselves, never mind about being in North America, just keeps going back and back and back over the last few years. Like back in the 60s and 70s, I don't think they thought that there was any kind of advanced humanity even within 120,000 years or whatever. I mean, so that, that, that whole part of it has just been flipped on its head as well. Exactly. Well, first, first I mean, this, it's a, this is also a very complicated story. Um, it used to be the position that there were no anatomically modern humans yeah, that's, before, yeah. about, before about 195,000 right. years. Uh, but now we know that that's not true, that there were anatomically modern humans on the planet at least 350,000 years ago, maybe, maybe long before that. And then there's the whole mysterious and interesting story of our ancestors' interactions with other human species, such as the Neanderthals and the Denisovans, who are named after a cave in Siberia, which I actually visited as part of the research for America before. And these, these creatures clearly were humans. They didn't look exactly like us, but they had to be human because we interbred with them. Many modern human populations carry up to four or five percent of Neanderthal DNA. Uh, others carry four percent of Denisovan DNA. So actually, we're a kind of hybrid species, and our our origins are extremely mysterious. And I get the sense we're only at the beginning of untangling the story. And and part of that story also concerns the story of the origins of civilization, because if you push humanity much further back, then you must open your mind to the possibility that civilization, which is a human creation, also goes much further back. Yeah. Speaking of, of uh, genetics and, and that creation, you were also mentioning in your book about the... Uh, the comparison between Australasian DNA coming to South America from the other side of the globe, maybe during the ice age. Um, and because, you know, America in, in your title, America, it's not about, you know, America, USA, it's about North and South America as a whole, uh, two continents. Right. So it's about the Americas. I, I, yeah. I, devote, I devote rather more space to North America than to South America, but not much more. South America plays a very important part hugely important part in this story yeah and and rightly so because 
the Amazon rainforest is a is a, a, a re, re, really incredible phenomenon. Uh, and although parts of it, sadly, substantial parts of it have been cut down to make way for farming and 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 for cattle ranches, stupid, stupid idea. Uh, there's still five and a half million square kilometers that are covered by dense rainforest that archaeology finds extremely difficult to penetrate. There has been some archaeology done there, but not nearly enough. And five five and a half million square kilometers of dense rainforest is an area larger than the entire subcontinent of India. Uh, so while archaeology does not have a complete picture of the past of the Amazon, we do not have a complete picture of the past of humanity either. Yeah. And new, new information has been emerging. And Characteristically, it has not emerged from archaeology. It's emerged from much more scientific disciplines, notably genetics. Uh, the study of ancient uh, DNA is a rapidly growing area uh, within the field of genetics, and it's helping to piece together missing areas of the human story. Uh, and and uh, leading geneticists from Harvard Medical School and from the University of Copenhagen have published a series of papers in Nature. And I've been in touch with these geneticists and interviewed them uh, in America before. And what they've found is a real mystery. They've found in the heart of the Amazon jungle certain tribes who have DNA that is closely related to the DNA of Australian Aborigines and uh, Melanesians from Papua New Guinea. Uh, let's call them Australasians. Uh, and and that, what's odd about that is that that DNA signal, which is very strong in the Amazon, is not found at all in North America, and it's not found at all in Central America. It's only found in South America, and indeed it's only found in the Amazon jungle. And it's extremely ancient. It does go back to the last ice age, because although skeletal remains from that period are rare, uh, some skeletal remains have been found, have been dated, and have been genotyped. They go back to the end of the last ice age, and they carry the same Australasian DNA signal. The reason that it's a mystery is that the peopling of the Americas is supposed to have happened entirely overland that the Americans are supposed to have been peopled entirely from Siberia across the Bering Land Bridge into North America, down through North America, through Central America, and into South America. But if that were true, then we would find the Australasian DNA signal in North America and Central America as well. So the stunning implication of this is that during the last ice age, when our ancestors are supposed to have been simple hunter-gatherers with no technological skills, during the last ice age, somebody was capable of organizing a voyage across the Pacific Ocean from Australasia to South America and to bring a population that was reproductively viable, who could leave a strong DNA trace uh, in South America. And that uh, is, is a, is a mind-blowing concept to archaeologists, and they're finding it very hard to get to grips with it because they say that nobody was capable of crossing the world oceans until much more recently. For example, the Polynesian expansion 3,000 or 3,500 years ago, the Polynesians were great navigators, but nobody's supposed to have been doing that during the Ice Age. And this DNA signal in the Amazon says somebody, somebody was doing that. And then we get to grips uh, and with, with the incredible mysteries of the Amazon itself and what is lying in wait for us in the Amazon. So what makes what makes you think that it's that it happened during the ice age and not way before for example? Like could they not have been connected even way before the start of the last ice age? 
Uh, it's 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 not impossible. I try to go with the evidence where wherever I can, such as like not stretch it out too far. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to. I don't want to to stretch it too far. And the fact is, so I, I want to make statements that are that are factually correct. And 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 what we have is skeletal remains carrying this DNA signal that date right oh. near the end of the last right, ice age. Right, right, right. Yeah. That's what we that's what we have, and and we can and that that means we can say for sure that this signal reached South America during the ice age. Right, right. That makes but, sense. But it would be it would be pure speculation to say, and it reached South America two million years earlier than that. Maybe it did, but yeah. uh, but but you know that's not a case that I can that I can prove. But the fact that it's there at all uh, raises question marks over the human story. Means that somebody was capable of navigating the Pacific Ocean. Uh, during the Ice Age. And then when we go into the Amazon itself, uh, we find all kinds of mysteries which uh, are relatively recently known. And in fact, the broad general public is largely not aware of these issues, uh, which have been mostly confined to rather obscure scientific journals. Uh, some of it has leaked out into the, into the popular press. For example, there are giant geometrical constructions in the Amazon, uh, enormous earthworks, which are rightly referred to as geoglyphs. They bear some similarity to the, to the Nazca lines, particularly to the geometrical aspects of the Nazca lines. Um, and you're looking at huge earthwork structures, which are hundreds of meters, and they're all geometrical. They're squares, they're circles, they're rectangles. You have an octagon enclosing a square. They're repeated geometrical themes. Uh, a number of these sites have, have, have these giant earthwork platforms, and then they're perfectly oriented to true north, true south, true east, and true west, which means not only are we dealing with advanced geometry in the Amazon, but also we're dealing with advanced astronomy uh, in, 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 the, in the Amazon. And this is very hard to explain because the view was that the Amazon was entirely populated by hunter-gatherers who were not supposed to be capable of doing grand works on this scale, which compare absolutely with the henges of, of Europe. Everybody has heard of Stonehenge. And of course, Stonehenge is, is known for its, um, for its megaliths, for its uh, giant uh, stones. But the henge part of Stonehenge is an earthwork. It's a, it's a ditch with an embankment. And these, these deep ditches with embankments are the basis of the earthworks uh, in the Amazon. But then, of course, there are also megaliths. Uh, in the Amazon. There's a gigantic megalithic site that I report on in detail in the book called Rego Grande, uh, which is uh, astonishingly sophisticated and contains very precise alignments to the winter solstice sunrise. And nobody, nobody was expecting anything like this to start emerging from the Amazon. And we wouldn't know about it if it hadn't been for these tragic clearances of the Amazon that have taken place. But having that having happened, the next step uh, is to undertake further investigation, which is non-invasive and which doesn't damage the rainforest. And that can be done with a technology known as LIDAR. Uh, and the initial results of LIDAR investigations is that we may be dealing with thousands of these structures. LIDAR, what LIDAR does is it effectively removes the vegetation cover and it shows you what's underneath it, but it does so with technology without actually destroying the vegetation. It uses laser imaging, bounced down from, from, from aircraft, and you can get a clean view of what's under the rainforest and what's emerging are just this vast network of enormous geometrical structures, deeply mysterious, deeply unexplained, and part of a broader pattern of mysteries uh, in, in, in the Amazon, which I think are going to cause us to, to reconsider our, 
our whole view uh, of of the human past. If 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 um, you know, if I can give you one example, uh, the evidence is compelling now that there was until the coming of the Spaniards, until the conquest, there was a population of twenty million people living in the Amazon. Huh. That they occupied gigantic cities, which were as big or bigger than the biggest European cities at that time. The first Spanish visitors uh, to the Amazon actually reported on the existence of these cities. A hundred years later, they couldn't be found. And people believed that those first visitors had made it all up, but they hadn't made it up. What had happened was they brought smallpox into the Amazon and the smallpox had entirely killed off the local population that had no that had no resistance to this imported disease. And within half a century, the jungle overgrew the cities. And a hundred years later, they were not visible, but they're now being revealed again because of the clearances of the Amazon. And we're having to come to terms with the fact that a huge part of our story as a human species uh, in the Amazon has been neglected for far too long. It's so interesting how they've, they're using geometry and the sacred geometries everywhere now and there's such a there's such an interesting power to it but for them to know that back then that there's something to you know shapes and and keeping things in a in a sacred geometrical way i mean it's just it's just mind-blowing that that's happening you know more in the past than it is now i mean now we're just building shit for the for the sake of i think the most modern example is probably washington dc yeah (laughs) well yeah that would that that would that would be true what's what's fascinating about the geometrical and astronomical structures in the Amazon is that they share close connections with geometrical and astronomical structures all, all around the world. There are, there are connections with the monuments of the Giza Plateau. There are connections with the megalithic sites of Europe. Um, and underlying it all um, is, uh, uh, is a system of ideas uh, about the nature of reality and about the nature of life and death. Um, Another area where we find astonishingly similar constructions to those in the Amazon is in the Mississippi Valley uh, in North America. And I devote a very substantial part of this book to the mysteries of the Mississippi Valley and the so-called mound builder cultures of the, of the Mississippi Valley. And these are also gigantic earthwork structures. And what's fascinating, uh, and it came as a surprise to me, uh, when I first visited Moundville in Alabama, uh, was to discover that the uh, system of ideas upon which Moundville is based, that it, it, it is, is virtually identical to the system of ideas that informs the religion of ancient Egypt. I mean, the parallels are absolutely stunning. They, they had a complicated belief system in the Mississippi Valley about the afterlife destiny of the soul, that when we die, our souls must leave our bodies and make a leap to the sky, to the constellation of Orion, which is seen as a kind of portal in the sky. And they must pass through the constellation of Orion to the Milky Way. Hmm. And they must a journey along the Milky Way where they will be held to account for the lives they've lived and where they will face challenges and ordeals. And this is exactly the same system of belief that we have in ancient Egypt. Uh, where again, the soul rises up to the constellation of Orion. That's why there's a narrow shaft cut through the southern side of the Great Pyramid, which points directly at the lowest of the three stars of Orion's belt. The Milky Way was the winding waterway for the ancient Egyptians. Along it, just as for the ancient Mississippians, the souls of the dead would make a journey and we would be held accountable for their, for their lives and would face challenges and, uh, and, and ordeals. 
Uh, and for me, it's just it's just impossible to. Of course, there's much more to it than that. It's it's impossible to explain this depth and level of similarities by coincidence. Uh, there has to be there has to be a connection, and and the the best possible explanation uh, for that connection, in my view, is not that the ancient Egyptians made a a sort of missionary journey to Moundville. Uh, as a matter of fact, they would have needed a time machine in order to do that, because ancient Egypt had been dead as a civilization for at least 600 years before Moundville was built. Uh, there was no possibility of the ancient Egyptians contacting Moundville directly, and yet we find the same system of ideas in both places. And to cut a long story short, the best explanation uh, is that both cultures, the Mississippi Valley culture and the ancient Egyptian culture, received a legacy from a remote common ancestor, that that legacy was passed down in both areas and it matured and developed slightly differently in both areas, but with enough common themes to show their interrelatedness, just like the distant descendants of a remote common genetic ancestor will have shared genes. So these ancient sites around the world have shared themes or or memes, and this is principally geometry and astronomy, the notion of as above, so below, the marriage of heaven and earth, uh, and the notion of the journey of the soul after death. These are all interconnected with these giant monuments that we find in the Mississippi Valley, that we find in ancient Egypt, that we find in ancient Europe, that we find in the Amazon rainforest. Uh, and, and the only way to connect all of them together and make sense of it is to say, we are looking at the outcome of an incredible legacy that must have been passed down earlier than 12,000 years ago, because for the last 12,000 years, until the coming of Columbus, the Americas were separated from the old world. Therefore, by logic, the source of this legacy is in the Ice Age. It's older than 12,000 years ago. And the Americas are, are, you know, extremely dynamic, it seems like, compared to a uh, some some of the places like Egypt, you know, like the pyramids can sit there for 10,000 or 20,000 years untouched. But America seems like it's just, you know, especially when you start looking at Randall's work and and stuff like that, it's like, you know, anything that was in America prior to uh, 13,000 years ago is probably gone. Well, that's, that's a tragic fact. Randall's absolutely right, and I, 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 make, I make a point of this in the book, is that the, the, the systematic destruction of ancient sites in America, uh, there were reasons why it, uh, why it, why it happened. Um, as we know, uh, America was uh, settled by conquest. Uh, it, was, um, it was taken away from its indigenous inhabitants. And when you're taking vast areas of land away from the indigenous and ancient inhabitants of that land, you like to convince yourself that those indigenous and ancient inhabitants kind of deserved to have their land taken over. You don't want to be confronted by evidence that they were highly sophisticated and, and mature civilizations. Uh, and when such evidence does confront you, why you tend to get rid of it. And, and sadly, that's what happened in America, not only for ideological reasons. Look, 90% of the mound builder sites that were documented in the 19th century are now gone. None of them exist. They've been plowed under for agricultural land. They've been plowed under to make space for housing or for industrial parks. They've just been, they've just been swept away. So we're left with 10% at the most uh, of this uh, heritage in, in North America. And that is a result of destruction, deliberate destruction 
that is, and, and disregard for what this heritage might contain uh, that has taken place really in the 19th and the first part of the 20th century. We're, we're changing now. We're more conservation-minded. We're more concerned with, with preserving the past. But, but the fact is that America did, uh, did, and we all understand why, that America went through aggressive and aggressively expansionist phase. And in that aggressive expansion, Native American cultures were deliberately diminished. Their achievements were played down, their land was taken away, and their monuments were destroyed. So that's the first challenge, is how to build a clear picture of what happened in prehistoric America when the vast amount of the prehistoric artifacts and sites have actually just been completely removed. No wonder uh, we're a species with amnesia. <laughs> yeah. When when that kind of when that kind of thing goes you know goes on and 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 then there's the whole ideological idea the the very fixed idea uh, which I still find people repeating today you know that Native Americans somehow were not sophisticated people that they weren't capable of of a sophisticated culture what utter rubbish they were capable of a sophisticated culture they just they just weren't as good militarily as the people who were entering their land. It's a simple matter of a conquest. Uh, those who have the greater military power succeed, but great military power does not necessarily coincide with- uh, Sophistication. Uh, with, with sophisticated culture. So are those, are the remaining 10% of those mounds, is the access restricted? I seem to remember hearing something about people that were looking to access those, and now that somehow it's been, it's been signed over, I think back to, the tribes uh, and and they can't uh, they can't access them anymore. Is that? Well, yes. I mean, in, 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 this is where you you know you've had a reaction to the yeah. terrible things that were done to Native Americans, and now maybe that reaction has gone too far because you know the Native American culture doesn't only belong to Native Americans; it's part of human culture, it's part of global culture, uh, and we need to be informed about it. So, closing down access to ancient remains and to ancient sites, while I understand it completely from the Native American point of view, uh, isn't helpful in any effort to, to shed light on what really happened in the past. There are, of the 10% of remaining uh, mound builder sites, there are many that are open to the public oh, okay. and, and that are incredible. Uh, and I describe at length in America before the, the very long journey that I, that I made through the Mississippi Valley. Uh, from Louisiana all the way up to Ohio, uh, and the and the incredible sites encountered along the way, of which um, to name to name one in particular, and we can go on and talk about more. Uh, Serpent Mound uh, in Ohio is uh, just an absolutely staggering and amazing and highly sophisticated site, and it's wondrous that it has survived, and uh, it has it has so much to teach us. It's possible to go to Serpent Mound at any time of year. And appreciate its beauty and its majesty. This one thousand three hundred and forty foot long coiled serpent that is placed on man-made earthen mound of a serpent that is placed on top of a natural ridge. Uh, it, it's a beautiful place at any time of year. But if you go there at the summer solstice and wait till the sun sets on the summer solstice, then you discover what serpent mound is really all about. It's about the marriage of earth and sky. It's uh, the head of the serpent is oriented directly to the place on the horizon where the sun sets. And this was done on an, on an enormous scale, and it was done a very long time ago. And it's by no means the only geometric aspect and astronomical aspect of the Great Serpent. It's a, it's a very beautiful sight. I was moved almost to tears when we were there 
at the spring equi- at the at the spring uh, sorry the summer solstice in uh, 2017 June 20th and 21st 2017 um, my wife Santa is a photographer and and we brought a drone along to Serpent Mound and she put it up 400 feet above Serpent Mound and just kept it hovering there as the sun went down and you just see this majestic connection begin to emerge and it suddenly dawns on you my god this is what it's this is what it's all about they were speaking to the cosmos they were speaking of our connection to the cosmos this is this is not only a beautiful place it's a deeply thought provoking provoking place uh go further north from serpent mound in ohio and you have two other amazing sites which are called high bank and newark uh, High Bank and Newark have both been substantially damaged. Uh, however, uh, in a process that I feel ambiguous about, Newark was a very important part of Newark was preserved. Uh, it was preserved because the land was bought by a private country club, mm. and they turned this enormous geometrical earthwork into a golf course. Uh, and and uh, the ancient uh, r- remains are are in fact visible from eleven of the eighteen holes. Of the of the golf course, and at one level, I find that annoying. Uh, this is a sacred site, incredible geometry. Why on earth are people playing golf on it? But on the other hand, um, it's why the site is still there. Because if it hadn't been taken over by by this private country club, chances are it would have been plowed under by now, and we'd have an industrial park there or something such. The big remaining figure at Newark is a combination of an octagon and a circle. And you have exactly the same figure, an octagon and a circle at High Bank. And Newark and High Bank are 60 miles apart. But the octagon-circle combination at High Bank is oriented at exactly, exactly 90 degrees to the octagon-circle combination at Newark. And to do that across a distance of 60 miles is a really remarkable feat of surveying, of geometry, and of astronomy as well. And it and it's sitting there under our noses and we, we we would not notice it unless measurements had been done in recent years uh, by modern archaeoastronomers who are stunned to discover that this was the case, that there was a culture that was capable of working on such a scale and and of relating sites to one another across distances of more than 60 miles with precise geometry. I would guess that June 21st and December 21st are the hardest days of the year to be Graham Hancock because you got all these different sites and (laughs) those are the big days. And it's like, where do we go this year? You know, and it's like, you don't want to miss it. And it makes you, and it makes you realize that I call it earth whispering to sky or, or the marriage of heaven and earth. This, this theme is found, is found all over the world. The, uh, just as, um, uh, serpent mount, targets the summer solstice sunset. So also Stonehenge in England, the principal axis of Stonehenge, targets the summer solstice sunrise. Uh, Just as um, Karnak, the the incredible ancient Egyptian temple complex at at Luxor called Karnak, which has an axis that's more than a kilometer in length, that axis targets the rising sun on the winter solstice, you can go there other times of the year. You won't see the sun rising directly down that narrow kilometer long axis, but you go there on the winter solstice and it's sitting there right in the middle. So the whole place has been, has been designed for that purpose. And you're right. So I have to, you know, I have, I have many choices as to where to be at the winter solstice and I, or the summer solstice or the equinoxes. The Great Sphinx of Giza is an equinoctial marker 
Again, most people don't know this and they don't notice it, but if you get up on the back of the Great Sphinx at dawn on the spring equinox, you'll immediately learn what it's all about because its gaze is targeted directly at the rising sun, whereas at the summer solstice, the sun would be way far to the left of its gaze and at the winter solstice, it would be way far to the, to the, to the right of its gaze. And I do not believe that we are dealing with coincidence here. We're dealing with a worldwide system of ideas which manifested in the so-called old world and which manifested in the new world as well, uh, and which goes back, in my view, to a remote common origin, let's put it as it is, a lost civilization. In all that mound research, because we've had a few people on the show over the years that uh, you hear the mounds and you hear about the, the giant bones and all that seem to coincide. Did you run into any of that when you were researching the book? Any giant stories? Yeah, I, other, other people are working on the issue of giants. I'm, I'm, not, um, I'm not instinctively interested in giants as such. The fact that a human being might be of a very large size doesn't make that human being especially interesting to me. Um, it just makes them a big lump of meat, basically. Um, if, if, if they were doing giant things, if they were manifesting giant intellects, then it becomes, then it becomes much, more, much more interesting. And this is where it's frustrating. I mean, we do have these, these um, suggestions, more than a suggestion, definite evidence that, that skeletal remains were covered up and were, were um, deliberately destroyed by, by institutions like the Smithsonian. Uh, in the 19th and the early 20th century. Uh, and that makes it hard to, to get to grips with all of this. But because it's so elusive and because in themselves I don't find giants interesting, I find their, their works interesting, I've concentrated again on the facts, on what can, be, what can be documented, rather than on what is pure speculation. Uh, because I have a project here. I, I, I want to see history rewritten. Uh, and if we're going to rewrite history, we have to do so with really solid ammunition. It really makes you wonder what was in like Utah and places like that, you know, like what would we be finding there if it didn't go through what it went through um, during the Younger Dryas? Well, exactly. This is the, this is the other the other side of the story. Uh, so on the one hand, we have the destruction of ancient American monuments uh, and ancient American sites that has taken place in relatively recent history. Um, it's taken place in the la really in the 19th and the early part of the 20th century. But on the other hand, if we go back to this mysterious geological epoch, which I think is the heart of the mystery, called the Younger Dryas, which extends from 12,800 to 11,600 years ago, we find that the Americas as a whole, but particularly North America, were the epicenter of a truly humongous global cataclysm. Uh, and everybody's aware that, that, that something cataclysmic happened because this is when the famous megafauna went extinct. This is when we no longer had mammoths and mastodons and dire wolves and saber-toothed tigers and giant sloths and creatures of this sort which roamed the Ice Age world. They all went extinct between 12,800 and 11,600 years ago just a massive extinction, uh, which needs to be explained. Things like that don't, don't happen by accident. And the extinction was global. It happened everywhere in the world, but it was particularly severe uh, in, the, in the Americas. And then as you get to grips with the science of the Younger Dryas, you find that this period, and I'm going to repeat the dates because they're very important, 12,800 
to 11,600 years ago. 12,800 years ago, the world was emerging from the Ice Age. It was actually getting warmer. Just before that, that ice-free corridor had opened up between the Laurentide and the Cordilleran Ice Sheet. Right near where we are in Calgary. Yeah, right near, right near where you are. And then suddenly, 12,800 years ago, and I'm sure Randall has talked about this as well extensively because he and I are deeply fascinated by this mystery. Suddenly, 12,800 years ago, global temperatures plunge. They just drop like a like a stone, they plummet to as cold as they were at the coldest of the last ice age. Now, normally, when you get a deep freeze like that, you don't get sea level rise. And the reason is that the water that falls as rain freezes as ice, and it stays on the continental land masses, and it doesn't go into the ocean. But on this, in this occasion, at the beginning of the Younger Dryas, we are mysteriously witnessing not only a massive plunge in global temperatures, shocking fall in temperatures, but also a sudden dramatic sea level rise right at the beginning of this episode. And then we have 1,200 years of, of chaos uh, in the earth when all the megafauna go extinct. The Clovis culture that I talked about first, which archaeologists say were the first Americans, they go extinct at that time as well. There are none of them left after 12,800 years ago. So we have a period from 12,800 years ago for the next 1,200 years, chaos and cataclysm. And then 11,600 years ago, another massive disaster. And this time the temperature reverses and equally puzzling, puzzlingly, it shoots up uh, almost to the level of modern temperatures. And, and virtually overnight in geological terms, the last of the ice sheets collapse and we get another massive burst of sea level rise, which is called meltwater pulse 1B. And that is officially the ice age and we've ended what geologists call the Pleistocene and we've entered the Holocene, which is our current uh, ge ge geological epoch. And that punctuation mark uh, is taken, has been taken uh, for a very long time by archaeologists. After that is supposed to be when civilization, the first traces of civilization begin to be seen and gradually the, so, the slow process of building up civilization begins. And my argument is no, that was not the start of civilization. That was a restarting of civilization after the massive punctuation of the Younger Dryas cataclysm. And, and fortunately, we now have some understanding of what, of what caused this cataclysm. And active work is being done by a very large group of scientists now to try to get to grips with that. Do you, think, um, do you think there could have been any sort of like evacuation or anything like, like that? Because I don't know. I like to think about the idea. Like, it seems to me that the pyramids were put where they were put for a reason. I would say during or before the end of the ice age. Uh, if I can, I think it's, I think it may be a little more nuanced than that. Okay. Uh, I, I know the Giza site very well, and I've spent a lot of my, a lot of my working life focused on the pyramids and the Sphinx and, and um, everything that, that happens at Giza. And I think actually what we're looking at at Giza is, uh, is, is a site that had two, at least two major phases of construction. And the first phase of construction was absolutely in that period, 12,800 and 11,600 years ago. The ancient Egyptians even have a, had a name for that period. They called it Zeptepi, the first time. Uh, and and uh, we, can, we can identify it quite precisely using astronomy, the astronomy of the Sphinx coordinating with the constellation of Leo 
and the and the astronomy of the constellation of Orion with its belt stars coordinating with the pyramid and the fact that stars change their apparent positions in the skies over thousands of years because of a phenomenon of known as precession uh, enables enables us to accurately date the site and what the site is what the whole Giza site is with the Sphinx and the Great Pyramids it's a map of the sky 12,000 ago and as the sky looked between 12,800 and 11,600 years ago um, and uh, you know this is uh, this is an indication of a connection with that age and then we have the the the, the whole issue of the geology of the Sphinx and the amazing work that's been done by the late great wonderful John Anthony West great friend of mine who was the first to realize that the sphinx must be geologically far older than the time of the pharaohs it's, it doesn't be, it's been attributed by archaeology to the fourth dynasty archaeologists tell us that the sphinx was made in 2500 bc uh, but the, what the geology of the sphinx says is that it was made thousands of years before that and john anthony west's work was subsequently strongly strongly supported by, as we know, Professor Robert Schock at Boston University, who's a professor of theology at Boston University. And what the Sphinx uh, bears witness to is that it was exposed to at least a thousand years of extremely heavy rainfall. Uh, and you don't get that rainfall in Egypt in the last 5,000 years. You have to go back to the Younger Dryas between 12,800 and 11,600 years ago to get that rainfall. So the Sphinx clearly is a part of the Giza Plateau that is of Ice Age provenance. Uh, so too, I believe, is the subterranean chamber beneath the Great Pyramid. I think that was the was the original uh, sacred place at, at Giza, and very few people get into it today. But but it's a hundred feet vertically beneath the base of the Great Pyramid, and I believe, and I've suggested for a long time, that it's only a small part of a much larger underground labyrinth uh, at Giza, which which may some secretive forces uh, within within uh, Egyptology may already have been involved in exploring this. There have been some very strange things going on at Giza, which have been covered up uh, and kept from the public. And then you have mysterious, giant, megalithic constructions at Giza, like the so-called Bali temples and the so-called mortuary temples, which have blocks of stone, in some cases, weighing more than 200 tons. These are very distinctive, very distinctive sort of units of architecture. And my argument has long been that they all do date back to the period of 12,800 years ago, but that the ancient Egyptians cannot be divorced from the Giza site. They themselves saw themselves as the inheritors of the legacy of the first time, uh, the, of the legacy of the gods. Uh, I, I'm convinced that a, a wisdom school was established in Egypt during the Ice Age and that it preserved and passed down knowledge and information. And when the right time came, and that time came about 5,000 years ago, the initiates of that wisdom school took the deliberate decision to switch ancient Egypt on, applying the ancient wisdom and the ancient knowledge. So there, the ancient Egyptians were involved in the completion of the pyramids. The ground platforms of the pyramids were placed there 12,800 years ago, but the completion of the pyramids was done by the ancient Egyptians with knowledge that had been inherited, preserved, and passed down as a homage to the era of the gods. Do you think it could have been like, sort of like um, a stronghold? Like maybe they knew they, they were advanced enough to know that something was coming. Like, like and Gobekli Tepe. Kind of like Gobekli Tepe was intentionally buried. Do you think the pyramid well, yeah. site was used as a suppository to restart the world? 
I, li I like the use of your use of the word suppository. <laughs> I think I think you mean repository. Yeah, yeah. No, I said repository, but I just had a tooth pulled. <laughs> I like I like the idea of a, of a of a suppository of the ancient world. Um, but but yes, of course, Giza is, <laughs> Giza is an archive. Giza is a repository. It is a, it is an archive of ancient knowledge and ancient wisdom, as is Gobekli Tepe. And in fact, that you're right to bring up Gobekli Tepe and to mention Gobekli Tepe in Turkey, uh, which is a site that we know to be 11,600 years old. It ticks that box. It coincides exactly with the end of the Younger Dryas and the ma massive earth changes that took place there. Uh, Gobekli Tepe is probably the largest megalithic site anywhere on earth. I say probably because much of it has not yet been excavated. Much of it is still underground. Spotted with ground-penetrating radar are hundreds and hundreds of other megalithic pillars that await excavation. But the dating of the site is absolutely firm. It's been meticulously carried out by the German Art Institute, and it dates to 11,600 years ago. Suddenly, that puts the Sphinx into context. The notion of a Sphinx that's 11 or 12 or 13,000 years old no longer seems so strange when we have a giant site like Gobekli Tepe dating back uh, to the same period. Um, and then what happens at Gobekli Tepe? Uh, prior to the construction of Gobekli Tepe, the evidence is that everybody who lived around there were hunter-gatherers. And then Gobekli Tepe is constructed and suddenly agriculture appears. It's as though, in fact, some archaeologists say, oh, they invented agriculture. Uh, I beg to differ. I think Gobekli Tepe was used as a center of initiation. It was used to mobilize and, and gather local populations to set them to a task, uh, and while setting them to a task, to initiate them in ideas that they hadn't considered before. I mean, you don't just get a group of hunter-gatherers who wake up one morning 11,600 years ago already fully equipped with the knowledge to create the largest megalithic site on Earth, a megalithic site that incorporates sophisticated geometry and astronomy. That has to be learned. There's a background to that, and there's no background to it in Turkey. Gobekli Tepe is just alone, comes out of nowhere, 11,600 years old. And so I believe that the skills of megalithic architecture were brought there by people who already knew that stuff. And at the same time, they brought the skills of agriculture and they used Gobekli Tepe as a site to mobilize and initiate the local population. And then finally, after it had run for about a thousand years, they deliberately closed it down. They deliberately buried it. It was very carefully. More work was put, almost put into the burial of it. Never had to kill over the top of it. That's what Gobekli Tepe means in Turkish. It means the pot-bellied hill, uh, that this hill was built over the top of it. Um, and, and I think that is about a time capsule. I think that is about saying, we were here, we knew this, pay attention to us. And it's a, it's a kind of spooky thing that it's come to light in our epoch, uh, just when we really need to know about stuff like this. And it's a shattering discovery for archaeology, because archaeologists previously had maintained another kind of dogma, that there was no megalithic architecture anywhere in the world before 6,000 years ago. The oldest megalithic architecture was supposed to be sites like Gigantia, in Malta, which is roughly 5,600 to 6,000 years old. And, and, and there was not supposed to be any megalithic architecture uh, before that. And then suddenly we find a site much, much larger than Gigatia, uh, much more sophisticated, which is five or 6,000 years older than Gigantia. And it cannot be explained within the, the, the existing 
model of history. And that's why I say gradually, bit by bit, little by little, it's not going to happen overnight. It's a slow progress, but the new evidence is mounting that the old paradigm can no longer explain. Yeah. And, and when a paradigm ceases to be able to explain new evidence, after a while, even the most recalcitrant holders of that paradigm have to be prepared to let it go. Well, like they say, if science advances one funeral at a time. Science is settled on everything, all sorts of stuff. <laughs> I hear it every day. Um, what about, and I'm, I'm sure, because has anyone officially noted that there's, um, because when I look at the Easter Island carvings and the Gobekli Tepe carvings, there seems to be like an eerie similarity. Similarity. Have you noticed any of that in the Amazon? I, I commented on that in my book, uh, my previous book, Magicians of the Gods, that was published in, in 2015. It's not confined to the Easter Island. What's particularly noticeable about Easter Island are the, the, the gigantic Easter Island statues, which are te technically known as Moai. And these Moai are often very big. They can be as much as 30 feet tall and weigh 20, 30, 40 tons. Um, and what they are, what they figure is the upper body of a human being um, with the arms shown and the hands placed low down on the belly with the fingers almost touching beneath a kind of belt. Uh, and you have exactly the same device at Gobekli Tepe. Those huge T-shaped pillars at Gobekli Tepe are in fact all anthropomorphic. They all represent human figures. When you get up close to them, you can see that they have arms carved into the side. The T shape at the top represents the head. There are arms carved into the side. The fingers meet, uh, come close together, low down on the belly, just beneath a belt, which is very, very similar to the belt of the figures in, in uh, Easter Island. So uh, either it's a coincidence or there's, there's something strange going on here. A number of researchers have pointed out that uh, uh, at the place called Rano Raraku Quarry in Easter Island, you have a number of these giant figures that are buried up to their necks uh, in earth. Uh, but back in the 1980s, Tor Heyerdahl, uh, who I had the privilege of knowing, uh, excavated several of those figures, expecting them only to go down a few feet beneath the earth. But they actually do go down a full 30 to 40 feet under the earth. And indeed, once you get to the bottom, you expose this same thing of the hands joining beneath the belly in exactly the same pattern as at Gobekli Tepe. And what a number of researchers, I don't claim credit for this discovery myself, what a number of researchers have pointed out is that those figures are covered by accumulated sediment. And on a tiny island like Easter Island, you cannot accumulate 30 or 40 feet of sediment in just a few hundred years. Archaeologists claim these figures are only a few hundred years old, but you need thousands of years to accumulate 30 or 40 feet of sediment that will bury them almost up to their necks. So the possibility that they might actually be as old as the Gobekli Tepe megaliths uh, cannot be ruled out. And then there's another curious thing, which is that the belts of the Gobekli Tepe figures have a, a device uh, carved upon them, which looks to us like the letter H in our alphabet very distinctive. You immediately look at it and you think, oh, that's the letter H. But we don't know what its significance was to them, but exactly the same figure uh, appears at, uh, for example, Tiwanaku uh, in the highlands of uh, Bolivia. That, um, that, that uh, H, that you have these huge H blocks. Yeah, yeah. Pumapunku too, right? So, you know, this is, uh, there are extraordinary interlocking theories of connections all around 
And the mainstream paradigm of our prehistory is finding it harder and harder to explain them. And at a certain point, the public gets fed up with archaeologists saying that this is all just pseudoscience. Yeah. Uh, actually would like an explanation for these mysteries instead of archaeologists just pouring scorn on it and saying there is no mystery. We are archaeologists. We know everything. It's unfortunate that this profession has been given the sole custody of our past. Yeah. Uh, that, that uh, you know, they are the ones who are officially uh, tasked with interpreting our past to us. That's a grave responsibility. And with that grave responsibility, I suggest it's extremely important that the individuals should be open-minded and should not close off new evidence simply because it contradicts what they've already pinned their careers to. Yeah. Well, now with the technology of LIDAR, and you mentioned uh, what they're doing in the Amazon a little bit, I mean, I'd love to see what, like, 300 feet down where the sea sea level you, used to be. Like, it would be nice to map out, like, where what the Mediterranean and what the Caribbean Sea looks like and even the North Sea. Like, if the sea level was, like, 300 feet lower, and, like, how far are we from having some philanthropist or somebody, like, really map, map the globe in, in LIDAR so we can actually see what's going on? Under, under the sea would be a different technology from LIDAR. LIDAR, LIDAR is useful in areas like uh, deserts. Oh, I thought you could do that there. Too. But under the sea, you would be using sonar uh, to build maps of the seabed. And that technology does already exist. Uh, it, it, it would be theoretically possible to, to reveal all of the continental shelves. Would it, be, it would be a very big research project. A lot of money would have to be spent on it. But I think it could be, it could be fruitfully spent. As you may know, I spent seven years of my life as a researcher scuba diving uh, on the continental shelves. Sea level rose 400 feet at the end of the last ice age. I did get my master diver certification, but that qualifies me to dive up to 40 meters, which is about 120 feet. So I never got much deeper than 120 feet. I would have needed more specialist training. I would have needed to use mixed gases to get down to 300, 400 feet beneath sea level. And at that depth, you work most efficiently with, um, with a submersible uh, or with remotely operated vehicles. But again, this is expensive work. Um, and, and the preconception of archaeology has been that it's not worth spending the money on that because we wouldn't find anything really interesting. We might find evidence of hunter-gatherer populations, but we, we wouldn't find anything that would change our view of history. So archaeology says, why bother? Don't spend the money on that. And if there is marine archaeology, they're largely spending the money on looking for shipwrecks from the Middle Ages, you know, rather than looking for the the origins of civilization same is true with the sahara desert i was just going to say like what about egypt or the sahara i mean you could do the same thing with that Sahara desert was green during the ice age it was a fertile land the climate regime was completely different from the climate regime of the last five thousand years um and and interestingly enough there are ancient maps that have survived uh, based on older source maps that are now lost an example is the kanepa map of, uh, I believe, 1489, which shows the Sahara Desert uh, filled with enormous river channels, huge river channels and lakes. Um, and interestingly, a radar survey of exactly that part of the Sahara in 2015 revealed that such river channels and lakes had existed there, exactly where they're shown on that map uh, dur during, during the last ice age. So we have to we have to say that in precisely those places in the world where archaeology isn't very interested in looking today, such as the Sahara Desert, such as the continental shelves, such as the Amazon rainforest, 
uh, in precisely those. Those are precisely the areas where we should be looking uh, if we're going to piece together the, the the missing past of the human story. To return to the Amazon briefly, and it's uh, which we talk, touched on earlier, and it's astonishing geometrical earthworks and and the question of, of what they were for. Um, I was intrigued during my research to look into the origin myth of a people called the Tucano, uh, who are an uh, Amazonian uh, people whose culture revolves around the consumption of the visionary beverage uh, ayahuasca. Uh, ayahuasca is uh, of great importance uh, to the Tucano. Um, and two points emerge from this. Firstly, that they regard ayahuasca as a portal to the realm of the dead. Uh, and, and that also, just as in ancient Egypt, just as in the Mississippi Valley, involves an ascent to the sky and, uh, and, 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 and a journey along the, the, the Milky Way. And secondly, the Tucano origin myth says that their ancestors in, remote, in the remote past, thousands of years ago, did not come from the Amazon, that they were brought there by a group of quote-unquote supernaturals uh, who included an individual called the Daughter of the Sun who taught them horticulture and how to make fire uh, and, and um, how to plant crops and including uh, a helmsman, the great helmsman who steered the serpent canoe in which this settlement mission in the Amazon was undertaken. And that's exactly what it sounds like. I can't help connecting that with the weird Australasian DNA signal in the heart of the Amazon. I can't help wondering whether during the cataclysms of the Younger Dryas, whether an advanced civilization that was destroyed had survivors and whether those survivors settled amongst hunter-gatherers uh, and tried to, uh, try, tried to use the skills of the hunter-gatherers themselves, but also to pass on their own skills and knowledge to those hunter-gatherers. Maybe there was a deliberate settlement program that, was, that results in that uh, DNA signal. Uh, in, in, in the Amazon. It certainly, it certainly sounds like that. And then on the other side of the world, in, in Egypt, we have the Edfu building texts, uh, astonishing body of texts, which almost perfectly summarize the story of Atlantis. Um, you know, Egyptologists say there is no reference to Atlantis in ancient Egypt. And strictly speaking, that's true. There is, the word Atlantis never appears in any ancient Egyptian text. But there is a homeland of the primeval ones. Uh, described in the ancient uh, Edfu texts, uh, which is an island, uh, which is inhabited by the quote-unquote gods, uh, which is destroyed by some object that comes streaking down from the sky, described as the great leaping one, and pictured as some kind of snake. And then there's an enormous flood, and the majority of the inhabitants are drowned, and made clear that there are a few survivors. And it, they make it their mission to try to restart uh, the world of the gods, or in my language, the lost civilization. And they travel around the world uh, seeking to pass on their ideas to other peoples. And I think one of the places they settled was Egypt, and another place they, they went to was the Amazon rainforest, and, and many other places as well. And it's to these primeval ones, their legacy that we are seeing manifested in the great megalithic and geometrical and astronomical constructions all around the world, which the Americas are absolutely a part of. And indeed, the conclusion I come to is that the best candidate for the homeland uh, of the lost civilization that I have spent more than a quarter of a century of my life focused upon, that the best candidate by far is the Americas uh, and is particularly North America. And there's, there's two principal reasons 
uh, for that. Uh, many, many reasons, in fact, but two, two principal reasons. Uh, and, and one of them is to do with the fact that we do know that from 12,000 years ago until the time of Columbus, the, the Americas were isolated from the rest of the world. If human beings had been in America long before that, there would have been time for a great civilization to evolve here uh, in peace and quiet with this vast resource-rich landmass of, of North and South America. Uh, it, would have been, it would have been perfectly feasible. And that's why I'm so excited by and, and report in America before uh, by a discovery that was made near San Diego by Dr. Tom Demeray, who's the chief paleontologist at the San Diego Natural History Museum. Uh, and Tom Demeray has excavated a site called the Ceruti Mastodon site, uh, just south of San Diego. The site was actually exposed while a road was being made. The grader went through and it revealed these mastodon remains. Then when they study the mastodon remains, they discover that they've been scavenged by human beings, that the bones have been deliberately broken open in a way that only human beings do, that the marrow has been carefully extracted, uh, that some of the bones have been taken away and others have been left at the site, that a tusk has been left stuck point down in the ground like a kind of like a kind of marker. And they go over this thing. They initially made the discovery as early as 1992, but the implications were so devastating for the picture of our past at the time that they initially didn't dare to publish their results. They waited until much better dating techniques were available, until they could be absolutely certain before they published the evidence, published it in the highly respected scientific journal Nature on the 26th of April, 2017, they published the results. And the results are that human beings have been in the Americas for 130,000 years, 10 times as long as Clovis, twice as long as human beings are known to have been in Europe, twice as long as human beings are known to have been in Australia. Suddenly, we have the possibility of a vast human heritage in the Americas. Now, I'm not saying that the Ceruti Mastodon site bears witness to an advanced civilization. I'm saying that, that what it proves is the presence of humans in the Americas 130,000 years ago. And then we have the archaeological neglect, the dogma of Clovis I, which makes most of those 130,000 years of no interest to archaeology. They won't look at it. They destroy the careers, as I mentioned earlier, of anybody who does look older than 13,400 years ago. Uh, so no wonder uh, we, we have missed so much uh, in the Americas. And the other reason why I, I think America really stands out is the, is the evidence largely arising from the Younger Dryas impact hypothesis, which both Randall Carson, Carson and I have done, uh, I, I think, our, our best over the last few years to bring to public attention. Uh, the Younger Dryas impact hypothesis places North America at the center of a global cataclysm. And that cataclysm, according to their argument, uh, was caused by a comet, uh, a comet that broke up into multiple fragments. And at least four of those fragments actually hit the North American ice cap uh, 12,800 years ago, unleashing a flood of meltwater into the Atlantic Ocean that stopped the Gulf Stream dead in its tracks and accounts for that mysterious sea level rise at that time. Then by stopping the Gulf Stream in its tracks, you turn the world extremely cold because that's part of the central heating system of our planet. Uh, the, the, the one explanation that explains all the evidence uh, is the comet impact theory. I'm aware that there are other explanations out there, and I don't, I, I'm, I'm very happy that people are coming at this from different points of view. Robert Schock thinks it has more to do with the sun than with a comet. 
Um, actually, the two ideas are not uh, the, the, the notion that this has to do with the coronal mass ejections uh, is not mutually contradictory with the notion of uh, comets, because if you get a comet swarm hitting the sun, that is going to produce coronal mass ejections. What's good is that everybody realizes and everybody agrees, even the mainstream agrees, that the Younger Dryas was a horrendous global cataclysm. Uh, and and uh, we now have many different approaches to understanding what that global cataclysm was. I'm personally convinced by the comet evidence. I think it's, it's utterly compelling. We have more than 60 major scientists. Not one of them is a fringe figure. They're all leading figures in their field. Uh, geophysicists, geologists, nuclear scientists. You know, when you get an impact like this, it creates um, very strange chemical and mineral signatures in the earth, iridium, platinum, nanodiamonds, which are caused by the shock and heat of the impact. These are called uh, impact proxies, and they are, they are spread all around the world, but they're particularly strong in America. For example, go to Murray Springs in Arizona, and you can actually see a running along the side of the draw there, you can see a black line, which is about a hand breadth wide. And that's referred to as the black mat or the younger dry ass boundary layer. And it's full, it's, it's full of soot and then full of these impact proxies, the nano diamonds, the, the melt glass, the carbon microspherules, the platinum, the iridium, right at the base of it. Um, and and it, it marks the moment when the world changed. It marks the moment when we entered this this punctuation mark, and, and uh, we have a reset of civilization. Not, it's not that civilization makes a slow start then, it's that civilization, as I said earlier, restarts then. That's how I read the evidence, and America is at the center of it. America was the most heavily devastated land during the Younger Dryas, the flooding in North America, and perhaps Randall has talked about this with you guys as yeah, well, yeah. in the Count Scablands, all the way south of the ice cap, just unbelievably flood flooding. Anything that got in the way of those thousand foot deep floods carrying icebergs the size of oil tankers, the icebergs themselves loaded with rocks, anything that got in the way of that would have been utterly obliterated and swept away. Sounds fantastic. <laughs> so how, how will that, do you want to, do you have a question, Darren? Or do you... uh, well, you go ahead. Well, how do you think that's going to change? I mean, the culture will be changed when this becomes mainstream in a few different ways. I mean, we're going to feel and vulnerable. It is, it it is, is in being, a lot of ways. I it can is. See it. It's, it's being, we're vulnerable to, to things that we thought were out of our control, like commentary impact or CMEs or whatever. But also, you know, knowing that we've had um, more advanced civilization in the past and that we've been around for longer, that, that'll change as well. Is, is there any other ways you think that our culture will change when this becomes? Because I feel like it's going to become. I think there's, there's, there, 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 there are two, two issues that you, that you rightly raise. One of them is the mistaken idea that many of us have, that the whole process of history has been about us, uh, that, uh, that our advanced technological oh, yeah. civilization yeah. is the apex and the yeah. pinnacle of human achievement. Yeah. And everything that came before us was inferior to us. Uh, that idea is going to have to change. Yeah. We're going to have to let go of our arrogance and self-pride. Uh, and we're going to have to realize that maybe we're not such a permanent feature. Maybe we're not so strong and solid and secure as we imagine we are. If a great advanced civilization of prehistory could have so easily, so easily been swept away, and then the second thing, without wishing to spread gloom and doom, uh, is that the debris trail of that giant comet that caused the Younger Dryas cataclysm is still in, in existence. It's called the Torrid Meteor Street, right. 
we pass through it twice a year. Each passage of the earth through the debris stream of the torrid meteor stream takes 12 and a half days. The torrid meteor stream is 30 million kilometers wide. It's the remnant of a comet that may originally have been more than 100 miles in diameter, a kind of small moon that broke up into multiple fragments. 12,800 years ago, several of those fragments bombard the North American ice cap, causing the onset of the Younger Dryas. 11,600 years ago, more fragments hit the Earth. This time they hit a world ocean. They send up a huge cloud of water vapor into the upper atmosphere, create global warming and explain the sudden rise in temperatures that occurs at the end of the Younger Dryas. There's evidence of further impacts during the Bronze Age. The most recent impact out of the Torrid Meteor Stream happened as recently as 1908 uh, in Siberia, the famous Tunguska event. That was at the height of the Beta Torrids on the 30th of June, 1908. That was an object estimated to be quite small, between 60 and 190 meters in diameter. But it flattened 80 million trees across an area of more than 2,000 square kilometers, an area bigger than any of our great cities today, as big as the city of London, uh, for, for, for example. Uh, and we travel through the Torrid Meteor Stream twice a year in June, and in November, and the Torrid Meteor Stream is still full of very large objects, which are all fragments of the original giant comet. The most famous of them is Comet Enki. Comet Enki is part of the Torrid Meteor Stream. Comet Enki has a diameter of five or six kilometers, and it's a fragment of that original giant comet. Nineteen of the brightest near-Earth objects are in the Torrid Meteor Stream. The scientists, the astronomers who are working on this now, uh, are convinced that there are up to 200 asteroids in the Torrid meteor stream that measure more than a kilometer in diameter. And remember, this is a meteor stream that crosses the path of the Earth twice a year. They're concerned, very concerned, that we are going to have other encounters. And this is where, where finally, we need, to, we need to close the circle, because if we were to face a cataclysm on the scale of the Younger Dryas today, um, I think it's a fair bet that our civilization would not survive it. Uh, we would become the next lost civilization. For all our technology, for all our skills, for all our power, for all our wealth, we are psychologically fragile. Uh, we are specialists. Everybody's a specialist in something, but very few people really know how to survive. Uh, we depend for our survival on the whole network of the economy and of society and of other people's skills. Everybody brings, brings something to the table, and it ends up with a plentiful civilization with our supermarket shelves groaning food and none of us worrying about food on our wood on our table or clothes on our backs or, or roofs over our head. And we've come to take this all for granted. We, we, we've not realized the effort and the work over thousands of years that was taken to build this up. We just take it for granted as our heritage. But if you have a giant cosmic impact, if we allow that to occur, and we don't have to because we have the technology to sweep our cosmic environment clean, it's a choice. The billions, the trillions of dollars that we spend on warfare, on developing incredibly sophisticated weapons of mass destruction, if we were to divert that to moving asteroids, we need have no fear of such a future cataclysm. But if it did occur, we would not survive. Who would survive would be the hunter-gatherers. It would be the tribespeople of the Amazon who are in the business of survival, the hunter-gatherers of the Namibian desert who are in the business of survival. They would pass through this cataclysm almost untouched, and it would be their descendants who would carry the human story forward. And 12,000 years from now, there might even be archaeologists 
who would be aware of 12,000-year-old myths that spoke of a great advanced civilization that once existed on this planet. And they would pour scorn upon those myths and say that it was all made up and just superstitious fantasies. But actually, that lost civilization was us. It's happened before. It can happen again. Uh, we have to take care. We've been given a precious legacy with this planet, with this beautiful garden of a planet. And it's our responsibility as human creatures to garden it, to look after it, to preserve it, to feel gratitude for it, and above all, to ensure the continuation of our species. Do you think, because uh, it's weird, because I, I mean, some of the stuff I've looked into said that that last ice age started like 39,000 years ago and it ended 13,000 years ago. And that's, you know, a well, full procession and we're a half a procession away from in, that. Yeah. It, it, the procession certainly does come into it. It's, it's very intriguing that, that we are exactly half a processional cycle away from the younger dryas. Oh, worrying. Uh, yeah. Or worrying. Indeed. It, indeed it is because, because there seems to have been an effort to send us, to send us a message uh, that this is that that uh, a message from the past to the future, a message from the past to our time, warning us that we live in a particularly dangerous time. I, I even considered the possibility that the astronomers of the lost civilization had fully understood the nature of the threat and understood it was cyclical and understood it was recurrent, and that that was part of the reason that these amazing sites were created and sites like Gobekli Tepe were buried to preserve them so that we could decode them. Decode them. There is an astronomical map. Uh, on one of the pillars in Gobekli Tepe, which encodes both the skies of the Younger Dryas period and our skies today. It seems to be deliberately making a connection between those, between those two skies. Um, but the Ice Age itself is older. The, the, the origin of the Ice Age actually goes back almost three million years, and there were ups and downs during the, during the Ice Age, and it finally did come to an end 11,600 years ago. Now we're going to mess it up with our carbon. Well, what do you <laughs> what, what do you think the chances are that these out of place artifacts? I mean, you mentioned the Denisovan bracelet that's been drilled. Looks yeah. like with a high speed drill, but I mean, we have to eventually. People got to start paying attention to those things. Stuff, I mean, yeah. or when are we going to find some that are undeniable for science to say these were made by intelligent, you know, humans? So, well, yeah, exactly. I mean, the whole out of place artifacts um, issue has been around for a long time, and let you. Uh, you you just mentioned Michael Cremo just now. Let's pay let's pay tribute to the amazing work of of, of Michael Cremo and and the re the revelation that there are many artifacts that have not been explained by archaeology, which archaeology has either chosen to ignore yeah. or seek to diminish uh, and and uh, dismiss. Um, and and we're reaching one of those points where there's just too many of these things. And the Denisovan bracelet that you mentioned is is an example of that. And I write about that in 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 America before. Um, I, I have two chapters in America before on the Denisovans because you can't write about the peopling of the Americas without considering um, uh, Siberia uh, uh, as well. The mystery, though, is that the, large, the area in which there is the largest survival of Denisovan DNA uh, is precisely Australasia, not Siberia. It's Papua New Guinea and uh, amongst Australian Aborigines. And that reminds us of this strange uh, DNA signal uh, in the Amazon, which comes from Papua New Guinea and from Australian Aborigines. I go into the implications of all of this uh, in depth in America before. And it's an amazing book. We recommend all of our listeners pick it up. I know a bunch of our listeners, uh, like I said, had the pre-order. I know we had our, our buddy Neil met you in Albuquerque last night. 
I know our buddy David Matheson is looking forward to meeting you in California tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And I'm all over America. I'm well. We're now speaking on the 26th of April, but I'm in America until the 4th of June, uh, and I'm on the road right the way across the United States. And I'm also I'm also visiting three cities in Canada: uh, Vancouver, um, uh, Montreal, and Toronto. Yeah, and and Toronto and. And uh, I'm doing a, a, a very big event uh, in Sedona, uh, in Arizona, in the in the middle of May, which I hope people will come along to as well, because Sedona is itself a magical and oh. wonderful, wonderful place. One of my one of my favorite places on the on the planet. So I'm getting the opportunity to revisit some amazing places in America and to meet the readers of my books and to give back to the readers of my books because I'm grateful to my readers and I I take the opportunity of these speaking tours, to spend time with my readers, to sign books for them, to dedicate books. I'm very happy to take pictures with anybody who wants to take pictures with me because at the end of the day, it's my readers who make my worth have any impact at all. Well, we knew you were going to Sedona. We've got a couple of Americans going to uh, to your event there. I think it's on the 16th, if I remember correctly. I think that's right, yeah. Yeah, we've yeah. got our buddy, uh, actually our travel Alan. coordinator, Alan. Alan Neal's coming to say hello to you there. Fantastic. And, and uh, I was going to mention, you know, you mentioned off air that your Grimerica shirt is one of your favorite shirts. If, yeah. you, if you want, I'll send a couple of shirts with Alan to Sedona. Please do. Please do. Send, me, send me a couple of shirts. I would love to have two more Grimerica shirts. I wear my Grimerica shirt at least once a week. Awesome. So do, so do, do send me more. And if people want to, to track these events and, and come to events where I'm speaking, go to my website, which is grahamhancock.com and go to the talks and events page and every single event is listed there. And there's also a page on the book America before, which gives much more background information on the book. Uh, so all the information is there on my website, GrahamHancock.com. Hopefully great. we can convince you to come to Calgary next time. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, hope so. I would, I would love to come back to Calgary. I'm sorry. It's not happening on this trip. And, uh, actually I should mention too, we are in Pagosa Springs on the 17th to the 27th of May with your good buddy, Randall Carlson. That's a short drive from Sedona. Hmm. Very, very tempting. Very, very tempting. We'll be- I hope we we might have an encounter. Yeah, we're <laughs> going to be checking out Mesa Verde and Chim- oh. Chimney Rock and stuff like that. And as far as I know, this is Randall Carlson's first event. So, Yeah, as I say, Randall Carlson is a man for, I, for whom I have huge respect. I count him as a dear personal friend, but Randall is also a genius. And Randall has more knowledge in the tip of his little finger about the geological past of the Americas than 10 PhDs added together. Well, you let us know, and we'll find you uh, find you a hotel nearby for sure. If that's something you can put together, and other than that, we we appreciate your time. You're you're welcoming Grimerica anytime, and we will get some shirts to you in Sedona. Yeah, thanks for the chat. Thanks for having me on the show. Okay. Good to talk to you guys again. Okay. Be well. Okay, you too. Bye bye. Bye bye. That was our chat with the one and only Graham Hancock. I was gonna I was gonna say that, uh, but I mean we can talk about it in this little outro here, but. After hearing him talk about the ancient civilization, it really does give me a magical feeling of what was happening before, you know, with the global culture making geometric uh, 
I wish you would have had megaliths and like there, it must have been a magical time. Oh, yeah. really we could have talked to him like, for like six hours. Yeah, because it's I, like he just I just want to let him let him ramble, let him go, you know. Because I just watched that uh, magical Egypt again, where he, where John Anthony West has a whole episode devoted to the ancient Egyptian mystery schools. Oh, and stuff really? Like that. And I hadn't thought of it to look at it in that context of being a rebirth of yeah. civilization. And now I got to go watch it again. Yeah, look at look at the Amazon. I mean, the, the building building things in these geometric patterns. I mean, it's fantastic. It's fascinating because I've been sort of awakening to sacred geometry ever since we've been talking to Randall as well. And now, and then learning meditation and all these different principles and how much sacred geometry is in all that. You know, the Merkaba and the Torah. Tor, well, the Torah is not really sacred geometry, but all that. Uh, the the flower of uh, flower of life flower of life and Seed all this and that. I mean it's just I don't know it's mind blowing to me it's amazing it's amazing yeah. what a great chat it flew by yeah it flew by it was good yeah I know Graham was uh, feeling a little under the weather from all his traveling and stuff like that so we're super grateful for him to make some time for yeah. us here in Gramerica yeah. And uh, yeah, it's been a long time coming. A lot, of t- a lot of people have been looking forward to this episode. I just want to mention as well, the book here oh, the is full of... pictures in the book are fantastic. Yeah, it's not just like a, just a written work. I mean, this is like a, it's a very thick, it's like three, two, two and a half inches thick, full of glossy pictures and diagrams and stuff like that. Like when we were talking about the serpent mound there, I was going to sort of reach over. I was trying to show Darren what that was, but there's those, uh, overhead, uh, drone footage of the serpent mound. I mean, it's, it's really, Oh yeah. I looked at all those pictures. Yeah. I've looked at all the pictures yeah. in the book. Yeah. yeah. That's the first thing I do when I get a new book. I look at the pictures and then I cycle and then, through and especially a book like that. So like that book, I just cycle through parts of it. I didn't yeah. like read it through from the beginning. Oh yeah. So, well, we didn't have it in time. There's a couple chapters on native Americans that stuck out to me that I went to and there's a great book. It's also on audible.com. I think it's on audio already narrated by Graham himself. So that'd be a great listen. Do we have fingerprints of the gods? Uh, I, I know, know I we, we have, have magicians. A, oh, oh, do we? Yeah, I'm not too sure, but it would be good to, we're, we're, we got a we new, get a new bookshelf. Yeah, we're out of already, space on already, the bookshelf. Yeah. slash support. Help us get a new bookshelf uh, and a bunch of other stuff. Fascinating. It was interesting because Ben David, we just t- chatted with Ben David. I, I wanted to get into that too because know, his thing is like the coronal mass ejection can even cause comets. That's right. I mean, it's not like one or the other. That could be both. It could be and, pushing comets at us. Yeah. Or, yeah. Or pushing a, an ejection that comes from the sun that is so comet-like because it's so dense or whatever. Like, mm-hmm. if it's a big enough ejection, Poof. it's more than just Fucking energy. Terrifying. It's material as well. Well, huge thanks to Graham for coming on the show. Huge thanks to you guys for listening. Even bigger thanks to the people that choose to support us. All that Randall Carlson talk. Remember, there is a bunch of extra Randall Carlson content in the Black Budget feed right now. I want to say four or six hours worth from the Monday night conference calls we've been doing, getting ready for our retreat that we leave for in just a couple weeks. We only got two more weeks of recording. Yeah, we we got to stock up on some stuff, I think. Depending on how we want to do it. Actually, nah, we're only, no we're only going to be there for a week, but I'm, I'm just, I'm taking extra time to drive down. I'm taking but, extra time too. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm but, leaving, you're leaving when? Tuesday and I'm leaving Wednesday. Oh, I thought you were leaving Thursday. No? Oh, I think I'm going to leave Wednesday night. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm going to work Wednesday, come home, and I think I'll drive maybe as far as Lethbridge or maybe as far as uh, Great Falls or whatever yeah. that place in Montana is called. 
there's no point in just going as far as Lethbridge. You might as well go at least four. That's what I'm thinking as I get over the border, get someplace in the States, stop there, have dinner, get a rest. Then you're in the States. You don't have the border to worry about the next day and you can just go. Yeah. So anyways, get the access to the black budget by donating anything at all, like any one-time donation or obviously we prefer a monthly monthly recurring donation which really helps us budget oh, budget huge, our expenses our and budget our growth and all that like we could not do this without it none of this so would be thank here you without so all much. the like, fantastic supporter yeah. network that we do have in place and yeah if you want to join that fantastic network of fantastic people head over to grandmarker.ca slash support today you got to do all the stuff in the show notes as well there's a bunch of stuff in the show notes you got to do I'd tell you to go get a ticket for the con. I mean, a bunch of you are probably frothing at the mouth when Graham Hancock just mentions that he might have to stop by and say hi to us. <laughs> and I don't know what other to, else to tell you other than we've been saying for four months not to wait until the last month. Yeah. And you get a surprise at the last month, and it's like, oh, well, we're sold out. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, don't let me forget to get Alan the shirts. That's right, yeah. That made my day to know that. He's wearing a Grand oh, yeah, America he's shirt. Not. He's in there writing that book in his Grand America shirt. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah fantastic. Anyway, hope you guys enjoyed the uh, much-anticipated chat with Graham Hancock. The timing is fantastic, as we are now three weeks away from the very first uh, Grand America event. Can, it's, yeah. It's almost yeah. a Grand Americon. Yeah. So you accidentally talk about things. And they become things. You got to be careful. I know. You got to be careful what you think and what you say. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. And we will see you next week. Think if I sit here long enough, fixed to this green, brown, blue spot on earth, approximately or 2,000. Ain't no domini, ain't no My hot drink would turn cold. My hot drink would turn cold. My hot drink would turn cold.
question baby woke up this morning and all my blues was dead and gone 